0: Hi, everyone. It's me, Alexa. On today's podcast episode, I am joined again by Johan Gross, who is filling in for Emma during her trip. Johan is a former student founder, still active in the startup scene, and he currently works full-time as partner manager at the Stockholm School of Entrepreneurship. I'm so happy to have Johan on the podcast again here today with me. On this episode, we are so excited to be interviewing our very special guest, Greg Vanerick. Greg is a high-impact executive, leadership developer, change maker, and award-winning author, training and speaking internationally on leadership, entrepreneurship, and life design, which is all about connecting personal and professional excellence. Greg is one of the most popular teachers from the Stockholm School of Entrepreneurship, and he's in town this weekend to host a Design Your Life workshop for students here in Stockholm. Previously, Greg was the former Vice Director of the Entrepreneurship and Innovation Management Program at the KTH Royal Institute of Technology here in Stockholm, where I am currently studying, and he was also the Vice Center Director for the Stockholm School of Entrepreneurship. He is also a former tech startup executive for K-12 Inc., which is now a market leader with $900 million in sales annually. He's the co-author of three influential books, Triple Crown Leadership, Life Entrepreneurs, and Charter Schools in Action. His writing has appeared in or been reviewed by Fast Company, Business Week, US News & World Report, The New York Times, Entrepreneur Inc, and even Harvard Business Blogs. Finally, Greg was also a student himself back in the day. He has an MBA from Yale, and he attended a master's at the London School of Economics and Political Science. And before that, he got his bachelor's from the Claremont McKenna College, where he was also an All-American soccer player. If you want to get in contact with Greg after this episode or throughout the episode, you can find him at his website, www.gregvanerich.com. That is G V A N O U R ek.com, and you can also find Greg on Twitter at gvanourek. Finally, I'd like to apologize for any noise you hear in the background of this recording. When we recorded this episode, we were not expecting to be right next to a preschool full of both playful and angry toddlers. They were really cute, but also very loud. <laughs> It was suggested that I joke that any crying you hear is actually from entrepreneurs who are upset about their business models not working. But please know that going forward, this won't be an issue and I hope you enjoy the show. So Greg, what are you currently up to and what does a typical week look like for you?
1: Yeah, so I have a new enterprise yet again. I've started a (laughs) uh, new uh, training firm that does leadership, entrepreneurship, and life design. Yeah. And so I'm designing and facilitating workshops and retreats. Uh, I'm doing speaking, uh, and then also a little bit of coaching and consulting.
0: And this is uh, all in the U.S.?
1: It's in the U.S., but, uh, well, internationally too, actually. So it's, uh, it's based in the U.S., and I have a focus in Colorado where I am now, but uh, an eye on the national market and internationally too. Mm-hmm. And having just uh, returned from ten years in Sweden, I'm very yeah. much looking to continue a strong Swedish connection yeah. uh, in uh, my work life as well as in our personal life. We yeah. have family here, uh, so it's exciting. It's a uh, you know it's a startup, mm-hmm. and so you know with all the challenge and the learning, but the opportunity that comes with that. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, there is no typical week to answer that question. Um, You you got
0: flown out to Stockholm this week. That's right.
1: Yeah, exactly. Which is super fun. It's great to be back and some really uh, interesting projects, uh, which is, you know, part of startup land is that Mm -hmm. sort of uh, the variety that, uh, I mean, there's so many different aspects. And so right now it's kind of hustle mode is Mm -hmm. a big uh, factor of, you know, getting out there with new business development, Mm -hmm. uh, networking. Uh, prospecting uh, and you know developing relationships with Mm. people as I start to build the new business
2: and are you doing this on your own or are you doing with someone else I
1: am I'm solo right now and uh, you know uh, in the past I've had uh, solo business I've had um, small business with uh, collaborators and I've had a startup that scaled to be pretty big Um, but right now uh, it feels good to be doing the solo thing Um, I can really focus it Mm and uh, figure out where it's gonna get traction and and then we'll see where it goes. Interesting, yeah.
0: So what ventures have you been involved with in the past?
1: Yeah, so... Tell us
0: a bit, I mean, I've explained it already, but tell us a bit about your background and in your own words.
1: Yeah, it's been a varied career. I mean, I started at a think tank in Washington, D.C. uh, and then it was a foundation. But that was interesting because that was a startup that we launched out of the think tank. Mm -hmm. And with that, uh, so most foundation jobs aren't startup. You know, they've been around for a while. But this one, we had $40 million in assets, which meant that we had a $2 million annual budget, which is, you know, a 20 million uh, kronor. And uh, we had to just start it from scratch. You know, what are the programs? What are we going to do? What's the budget? What's the plan? And then we had to go out and execute and so that and was super fun. how old were you at this fun. Point? Um, I was, you know, early 20s, uh, pretty fresh out of school, and, and so it was a tremendous challenge and a learning opportunity for me. I was just really being thrown at a lot of things. And uh, you know, I was uh, the vice president of this startup foundation. The president was this senior guy who had written 20 books and he'd worked in different presidential administrations in the U.S. Department of Education and been a professor. Uh, But he was more of a big picture guy, and so he needed somebody who could kind of execute, who could do the budget, who could launch the website. And so it was a great opportunity for me to just get my hands dirty and roll up my sleeves and just do stuff. And we built that out, which was a lot of fun. Um, So did that and then went back for my second master's degree. And after that, I had the opportunity to join a startup company. I had a couple of choices and ended up taking that. Um, And so this was really exciting. This was a brand new online education startup. And uh, so I had the opportunity to come in and be the the vice president of the charter school division, which later became the senior vice president for school development. And so this this business was developing lessons and assessments online and offline, and offering that nationally uh, in the United States To serve public school students, private school students, and homeschoolers, Mm -hmm. And then my line of the business that I ran was the virtual school division. So instead of having uh, students go to a brick and mortar physical school building, they would go to school online, uh, which of course has been around for a while. Uh, But back then, we were the first company to try to scale that and go big with that. There were a lot of kind of mom and pop versions of Mm -hmm. that. Uh, and most of it was in higher education and university, but we were in K through 12. Okay. And so we launched that and uh, became the market leader in the space in a matter of a few years. And so we went from five or six of us sitting around the table to four years later having hundreds of employees, wow. doing about $65 million in sales, <laughs> a market year. leader a year, uh, every <laughs> year. And, How old you? Uh, and so at this point I was 30.
2: Okay. Um
1: so and I was fresh out of my MBA program and it turned out that the business line that I was leading turned out to be our biggest business line by far. We didn't know which of the business lines were going to pop. Yeah. Uh, we suspected this one might. And so it ended up being really exciting, but also tremendous responsibility yeah. because if our team didn't deliver you know new engagements, new schools, and do that effectively, the company would literally run out of cash and everything yeah. would be over. Uh, so it was
2: really high stakes and super exciting. Was this an attempt to take over the homeschooling industry or was this for schools in particular?
1: Uh, it was both. I mean, we really, we, you know, the idea was there was a big problem at the heart of, our, of mm-hmm. the company. So we had a social mission and the problem was that in the United States, as in a lot of places, your zip code determines the quality of education, yeah. your yeah. postal code, so yeah. where you live. So if you live in a nice affluent suburb, uh, you know you might get a really good education, have access to Mandarin Chinese and advanced calculus. But if you live in a small town or you know remote Alaska, I mean, in some pl- they're literally flying in books and dropping them, you know, in some huh. towns in Alaska. And so, mm-hmm. so we said. Why can't we bring world-class education, research-based, really good pedagogy everywhere? Mm-hmm. And, and because as long as you have internet access, you can get, you know, you're can get—you not limited to the teaching pool that you have there locally and the resources. Mm-hmm. So that was the idea. And so we could serve public schoolers, we could supplement them, homeschoolers could benefit mm-hmm. from this instead of mixing and match, matching their own curriculum. Mm-hmm. But these virtual schools were cool because they were government-funded, government-sanctioned, publicly, you know, publicly funded, publicly certified virtual schools. And wow. so we were a for-profit startup serving you know, the public sector. And so you have to meet all these legal and regulatory yeah. requirements. <laughs> I can
0: only imagine. And all these
1: political debates. Yeah. Uh, so it was really um, drinking out of a fire hose the amount of learning that we did and that I did, you know, at this you know, rapid scale-up startup.
0: I'm sorry, Johan. That was something I noticed about you, actually, because you have a background in politics and philosophy and then also economics, and you went on to get your first master's in government Mm -hmm. um, and then after your MBA at at Yale. But I'm wondering if any of this kind of helped prepare Mm -hmm. you to have all that politicalness in the startup environment.
1: Uh, it did, you know, because, and particularly, you know, this startup was uh, had a lot of political fault lines and challenges and a lot of regulatory mm-hmm. and legal issues. So the fact that I'd studied politics, philosophy, and economics undergrad and comparative government over in London for my uh, for that master's degree was really helpful. Um, you know, we really, it was kind of an Uber problem as a way to talk about yeah. it today. The technology was ahead of the law yeah. and the regs. And so, you know, you've got school systems that are basically based on a 19th century model and an agrarian calendar. Mm-hmm. And you've got high tech, online, offline, asynchronous, you know, all these yeah. things, animations that we were doing back then. And you couldn't find it in the law. Yeah. And so in some cases we had to propose and pass new laws or amend laws yeah or <laughs> litigate whether the law allowed what we wanted to do or not. So
0: were yeah. you a bit of a think tank yourself to help lobby with this or? Yes,
1: we, so, we, uh, so first of all we had to gather a lot of information. Uh, the United States is actually, we don't have an education system, we have 50 education systems because yeah. each state runs its own mm-hmm. system, so there's complexity there. So we had to do, you know, in a startup like that, you really have to do your homework. Mm. You have to be really well prepared. You have to know what you're talking about. But even then, there was so much uncertainty with the laws and the regulations. Uh, But we had to hire consultants. We hired lobbyists. We hired experts to help us navigate some of these political dimensions. And we still got creamed (laughs) in some states and just didn't know what we didn't know. And so there was a huge learning curve uh, on that front as well. It's just like building a business and culture and all those other things.
0: But I think the so. political and legal aspect is something that startups never really think of going mm-hmm. into it. And then you look at Spotify, for example, like right. or Uber. I mean, mm-hmm. they have to deal with a lot of this. And I think a lot of initial founders aren't expecting that at all.
1: I think that's right. And, and so I think you're really wise because when you're young, if you're a student who's interested in it, you don't know what you don't know. Yeah. Uh, you don't know what questions to ask. You don't know that you might be stepping in a, le- you know, in a minefield mm. by the way you're approaching something. And so having senior advisors, having mentors, you know, there's some really good law firms out there, mm. accounting firms that can support you. Obviously, the incubators and the accelerators mm. and the, these kinds of things are, are wildly valuable. And I think I've seen a lot of founders who make a lot of assumptions. Yeah. So. And
2: yeah, it's not a perfect world,
1: exactly, yeah. Murphy's Law, right? <laughs> you know, if anything can go wrong, it will. And so there are certain things that you have to figure out often for your business that's a threshold question. Mm. Like if that's not true or if we don't do this, everything else falls apart. Mm. You know, and it might be related to copyright law or it might mm. be trademarks or it might be patents or it might be you know, certain legal, legal or regulatory things. And so, it really behooves you to do work on the front end to pressure test, identify and pressure test those threshold questions mm-hmm. to make sure you can do what you think you can do
2: uh, and what you want to How did you manage to balance this of consulting experts who know the system but don't want to change the system with a company that was coming as an innovator into the system proposing a completely new method? How did you...
0: Yeah, you were a disruptor.
2: Exactly. We were a disruptor,
1: and, uh, you know, we had to work with a lot of, you know, we were growing so rapidly that we, w- we had to work with a lot of partners out in the field. You know, we were headquartered in uh, Northern Virginia near Washington, D.C. And I led a team regionally that we had a West Coast team and a South team and a, you know, Midwest team and a New England team in the upper Northeast. And... You know, We had to rapidly find partners, uh, government partners, uh, sometimes a local school board, sometimes a public university, sometimes a political state board of education. Uh, we had to find lawyers and consultants in those markets, but we didn't have time because we literally had our cash burn rate, yeah. right? And so uh, you have to move quickly. Um, and, you know, so sometimes we, we find partners who we thought we were good and it turns out that they were not fully on our side because of their local context and the politics. Um, it, but you'd really have to get the lay of the land. And so, you know, using your network and the network of your network. Mm-hmm. And fortunately for me, I had been at a think tank. I had worked in education policy and I had written a book on charter schools with a couple of co-authors. Okay. So I had this, uh, knowledge of what was going on in that sector, not virtual school specifically, but a kind of charter school specifically. And then I had a network of charter school people around the country that was wildly helpful. And so that's the other thing I would say for student entrepreneurs or young entrepreneurs is don't do it yourself. (laughs) You know, there's so many things. It's so hard, you can't, there's so many things. I mean, your to-do list, will literally be like 100 things long one day. And then the next day, after working really long, it's 125 things. And then, you know, it's just getting worse. And and so if you think that you have to control it, that you, know, you have to be the one who decides, you have to get good at sort of really uh, utilizing a team and being open to feedback and input. Uh, but choosing wisely who you do work with.
0: Yeah, that's something we yeah. talk about a lot on the podcast because yeah. team is so critical in those early stages and I mean you've been coaching and teaching students about entrepreneurship for a decade um Mm -hmm. I don't know if you have any great advice for how students can maybe start to look for a good co-founder or yeah to know they're ready to start a venture themselves
1: Mm -hmm. well that co-founder question I think is so important to uh to pause on and I think a lot of people just jump in, for example, with a friend or with you know the convenience factor. Yeah. Somebody's available, and you just dive in. <clears throat> and that's really risky. Um, the co-founder dynamics, I've experienced it where um, you think you know somebody, and then after working for years and yeah. often an intense situation with a startup, Certain aspects of your personality, your nature, are revealed there, <laughs> and and there can be you know good people who just disagree or have like a different value set, mm-hmm. where you know so in one case fundamentally we had a different aspiration for the business, mm-hmm. yeah. and we didn't know that at the beginning. But part of the reason we didn't know it is because we didn't do enough vetting of each other and mm-hmm. really gaming it out and projecting, and so I think. The best thing that you can do is work with people that you've worked with before significantly. You know, if you haven't worked with somebody, it's really risky um, because how could you know? And so even you know, a student project, but a significant student project, mm-hmm. and hopefully multiple uh, projects, and then really going deep. I think on values. Mm-hmm. Uh, on what you want for the business including you know the time horizon yeah. is this you know do you want to do it a few years and sell is this something you want to build into an ongoing venture you know what does success look like for you and I think the kind of culture yeah. that you want to build you know what if, if you start hiring the people and you what do you want it to feel like to work mm-hmm. there and are you simpatico with that? Do you have a good match there? Are you aligned, I think is really important.
2: Actually touching on values, um, I wanna go back into a bit of your background because I know that you co-authored Triple Crown Leadership with your dad, who's been the CEO of a billion dollar company. Mm -hmm. Could you tell us more of how your father and your family in particular affected the way that you see values in terms of running businesses and how this led you to the entrepreneurship world and if it had any effect in it, if that makes
0: sense. Big question. Yeah,
1: my dad's had an enormous influence on me. Uh, He's a remarkable leader. He started out doing a little bit of entrepreneurial stuff. He was in the army, but then he got into corporate and he did some private equity, um, really brutal situations where you have to cut costs and you have to really restructure. And he started, you know, and, and that's what he learned in business school. And it was just brutal. And he started to question, you know, is this what business is? And by the way, he came out of business school and, you know, his goal was, I want to run something, you know, it was about, he was just, you know, ambitious and driven and he ended up, you know, running uh, five companies as CEOs and later got into turnarounds. But this kind of experience early on caused him to kind of question everything. And then he encountered what's called servant leadership, which is a leadership model that came out of the 1970s with Robert Greenleaf really flipped everything. Mm-hmm. Instead of thinking about the leader is on the top of the pyramid in the, in the org <laughs> chart where there's the hierarchy underneath you and people, mm-hmm. you tell them what to do and you're the head honcho, the servant leadership flips that literally upside down. And as the CEO, you serve your team and you, ser- you get your team to serve your customers really well. Mm-hmm. And the test of a servant leader is... Did the people working for you grow and develop as human beings while they worked for you, and did you serve the customers well? And this was just a mind flip <laughs> for my dad, and he said, "Wow!" And, and he was kind of thinking about, "Is there a better way to do business?" And so, taking into that and then carrying it further, we discovered our own leadership model and wrote a book about it, okay. as you, you know, <laughs> called Triple Crown Leadership. And so, and the the summary of that is. what kind of leadership does it take to build an organization that is excellent and ethical Mm -hmm. and enduring? So that's the Triple Crown, excellent, ethical, enduring. So you get great results ethically, you know, the right way, and over time, sustainably, right? And so it's really rare uh, but amazing if you if you can do it.
2: I'm curious. How was your dad at home? Was he th- did he change his leadership with his family too? <laughs> Has he changed it with business?
1: Yeah, uh, hard to say because when you're a young child, you don't really you're not as aware of your uh, your parents' styles. But I yeah. think he definitely softened over the years um, and. You know, One of my great lessons that I learned from my dad and his business career, his leadership, was it's all about the people. Yeah. I mean, my dad, as you said, he ran a billion-dollar company, did these brutal turnarounds. They did some amazing things with product quality and innovation and Skunk Works ventures. Mm-hmm. And he looks back on his career, and he says, you know, we've accomplished a lot, awards, you know, growth. Um, but he says, it's the people that I worked with. You know, what we did together, the relationships, getting to know their family, being part of their journey. Um, and he always welcomed my brother and me. You know, we would come to, to go to the cafeteria or company events, and he he talked to us. So we kind of softened in the human factor. Uh, there's a professor from Harvard, Heifetz, who says, the work is through the people. Now, you might have a great strategy. <laughs> you might have a great business model. But if you don't have a good culture and if you don't have good people... yeah. Right, and so what are you doing on the people on the front end? And this is one of the great lessons from Google. Mm. You know, most companies they spend a lot of their money their their HR budgets uh, developing people, mm. Mm. which is important. I'm a big believer in that, yeah. and I do that. But Google says, what about the front end? What is our process mm. for vetting? And mm. so this could be applied to co-founders. Mm. And every hire, I mean, if you're in a small startup, yeah. you make a hire, that's a huge percentage yeah. of your viability. Yeah. And so what are you doing on the front end mm. to to Especially
0: that? if you're going to give them equity as well. Exactly. And yeah. I know our last student founder that we interviewed, Alex Jacobson from Waves, he is only 21 years old, but he's even realized that himself, at the end of the day, all it is is people. Mm. My company is just people. So that's the most important part of
2: it. Yeah. That's what I'm wondering in terms of students when they go out, say, want to start a company or join a company, how can they know that they're going to be working with great people? What is a method that you would suggest or recommend in terms of knowing if you have a good boss or you have a good co founder or a good colleague?
1: Mm. I think um, a lot of interviews are kind of one sided, and we have this mm. mental model of I really want to get the job, and so yeah. I really need to prove myself. And the best interviews are truly two way, mm-hmm. and I think the best <coughs> excuse me, the best companies recognize that you know it's really um, an exploration of fit in both directions, and they should be selling their vision and the company and the culture to people who come in as well. And so, really having a lot of detailed questions—you know, mm-hmm. not just the uh, boilerplate, but some probing questions—and um, and following up with other employees, you know, asking to talk to other people. Can you visit? Um, using your network, you might know people who work there, or who have worked there, or mm-hmm. who know people who you know who work there, and really getting that overarching sense a really rich and not just taking things for granted you know you might hear one thing but the person's trying to sell you you know and then of course online nowadays there's so many great you know tools that you have to get access about what people said and how much money they're making in a lot of companies Um, and so that's doing your homework being methodical Um, because Choosing a place that's not a good fit for you, for the role or for the culture, yeah. well, it can be a big waste on both sides. And it doesn't mm-hmm. serve anybody, mm-hmm. uh, and they'll be impressed. You know, if somebody comes in and they've got tough questions and they are vetting you. It's like, mm-hmm. whoa, this person has it together. You know, they they are confident. Mm-hmm. They know what they want. You know, they're clear. Um, that's impressive. You know, when you're on the other side of the table when you're interviewing people. Yeah.
0: You know? Where do you think passion comes in, especially if you want to form a team that's maybe not with people from your same program that you've done school projects with? Do you think passion maybe would be the main indicator for how you could find a good co-founder fit with someone from a completely different program or school with a very different skill set from you?
1: Mm. Passion is a really good indicator. Um... And so, you know, do they burn for this topic, for this vision? Do they, you know, mm-hmm. they really see the potential here? Um, but people are complicated, and some people have a passion for that, but they have a passion for a dozen other things. And you know, there are a lot of people who are in the entrepreneurial space who are you really kind of get pulled in lots of directions, mm-hmm. and they have a hard time focusing, and they're visionary and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And so you have to you know think about that passion you know how focused is that as uh, one question but i think i would say your passion personality is another like a mm-hmm. complementary personality yeah. you can look at like they use a color wheel like this mm. an intense person a yeah. salesy sunny optimistic <laughs> person a down-to-earth person yeah. a logical you know having a variety is really yeah. good and then, and then as we talked about earlier you know core values is mm-hmm. another fundamental thing so I'd be want to, wanting to look at a few fundamental pieces mm-hmm. now you don't want uniformity you yeah. certainly don't want to have all just the same you right. know you need the variety and the diversity mm-hmm. that's going to be hard to manage but it's going to give you sparks it's going to give you a little bit of productive conflict (laughs) and the potential for innovation, because Mm -hmm. people are seeing it from a different background, a different life experience, a different perspective, Mm -hmm. a different personality. And if you can manage that without people wanting to kill each other,
2: (laughs) it can be really beautiful.
0: Yeah, definitely. Wow.
2: I want to jump actually into one of the reasons why you're here at uh, SECS Storm School Entrepreneurship, this weekend. Mm -hmm. And it's the fact that you're teaching a workshop in designing your life which is by far one of the most popular workshops that we've ever done, Um, and we continue to do it, and we want to see how we can expand that. Um, I'm wondering, why do you think this is such a popular topic? Mm. Why are you so popular in that
1: sense? I think this is a popular topic among university students, and by the way, alumni as well, Mm -hmm. because we actually serve many alumni who come back for this because it's it's such a wicked problem you know the, the there's a book called designing your life and they talk about the decision explosion that you face when you're a student yeah. you know it's you have you've gone through high school and you're in university and you may go to graduate school or PhD or you may go work or you know you may go back but Everything is structured. You've got a major, you've got your courses, you have your projects, you have your grades, you have your thesis, you have your activities. And then all of a sudden you fall off a cliff. Yeah. And it's, oh, what should I do with my life, you know, the rest mm-hmm. of my life? And it's it's really hard to know. Um, you're so busy in school, it's hard to even find time to think about that. I'm and to facing work on that it. right now. Yeah. And it's... <laughs> There's a lot of anxiety, right, yeah. about it. You and know, I don't if,
0: think anyone teaches you or helps don't. you to even talk about this. There's not really a forum for it.
1: Yes, uh, it, it's a gap. in this, yeah. And, and you know, one of the reasons this subject is popular is there's, a de, I believe, there's a design flaw in our system, mm. right? It's And so it's you're supposed to make this big decision, a life-changing decision about what am I going to do, what career path, right? And... Um, you've got a lot uh, and, and by the way you're gonna spend about 90,000 hours over your life at work so mm-hmm. this is gonna be a significant part <laughs> of your lived experience before you die yeah. uh, right and, and then there's a lot of pressure right from parents yeah from peers maybe you're at a program where there's a lot of your pressure to go towards this or towards that right and then you don't have a lot of information yeah right about this versus that and you probably don't have a lot of experience with having done this or that, right? And then it gets worse because once you pick something, the switching costs get higher and higher. You're invested in law school or you've done architecture, you've done this, and oh my word, if you want to change, because that doesn't end up being a fit, which is highly likely based on yeah. the problems yeah. A, B, and C, then you gotta go back to school, you gotta mm-hmm. take a pay cut, you gotta lose time, you gotta explain it to your parents and your <laughs> friends, you know, what are you doing? You know, I'm worried about you. I thought you were an architect, yeah. right? And and so it's a wicked problem. Good luck with that, right? Yeah. It's like, so and, but that's many people stay
0: trapped in something they that they're trapped. not yeah. passionate yeah. about. So,
2: I would say not just many, I yeah. would say most people, most because do. it yeah. is easier to stay yeah. than easier to stay. change. Yes,
1: exactly. <laughs> yeah. and, and so people have a lot of anxiety around that naturally, you know. People get stuck. Mm. And part of why they get stuck is they have so many options. Yeah. I could do a startup, um, I could do my own, or I could go work for one, or I could well I could do the big corporate thing, well maybe I'll do consulting and I'll get experience, or maybe I'll do, you know, yeah. and so uh, all these options that you legitimately could do, and uh, Barry Schwartz talks about the paradox of choice, yes. you get paralyzed by yeah. having too many options, and so part of this designing your life idea is you can get unstuck, mm. you know, start ideating, start mm-hmm. gathering data, start Doing things, start uh, an internship, do a project, uh, learn, go interview people, and all of a sudden you start to open it back up. You're not really stuck. Mm -hmm. You've got this amazing brain that's got unbelievable creative capacity, and you've got brilliant people around you. You just think you're stuck because you're thinking that you need to have the right answer. It needs to be the perfect career choice, you Mm -hmm. know. But you don't, you need to start working your way towards it mm-hmm. and ruling things out yeah. and trusting that it'll be okay you know, if you apply yourself. The problem is people don't apply themselves to it. Mm-hmm. They avoid it, mm-hmm. right? And then they, have, they end up panicking, right? And you see this even you know, at the end of PhD. You know, mm-hmm. You've know, done your undergrad, you did your graduate work and your PhD and they still have been avoiding and avoiding. And it's like, <laughs> oh my God, what do I do? you know, uh, because all of these tendencies.
2: Yeah. And how, if, say, I'm a student and I'm considering all my options, how would you suggest to go about it? What is, what would you do? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh,
1: it's 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 a tough, it's a great question. It's a tough one to answer, but I think they have some general, general points. I mean, the first part of this work is what I would call discovery work. Mm-hmm. And a lot of, and so the discovery work is, who am I? What am I good at? What do I love to do? What do I get lost in? Where can I add value in the world? You know, with my skills and my, that match up with my interests that fit with my values, right? And so that, you know, for thousands of years, philosophers have told us, you know, know thyself and the, the power of self-awareness. Self-awareness is one of the power, power skills of great leaders and entrepreneurs and just good living. Mm-hmm. Right? And, and doing that inner work. The problem is most of us skip over that. And yeah. you know, this is a little weird, self knowledge and you know, values and passions and and so we don't have a language for it. We you know, often people are a little bit uncomfortable. Um, and so we don't do it. We've got our head down, we're busy, you know, we're yeah. I've got thesis, I've got this. And so we totally avoid that. So that's a huge mistake and that sets you up for really big problems with your leadership, with your entrepreneurship down the road. Mm. So that's very valuable. And and then, you know, you get busy, you, you ideate, um, but you <clears throat> you hustle to yeah. kind of gather as much information as you can about uh, a few different options. Mm. And it's important to have a few diff- different options in parallel. A lot of people uh, prematurely... Um, s- focus on one option and they get on that track and then you've just got blinders on confirmation Mm. bias and all these Mm. things you're just missing it and so you need to have multiple options in parallel and you know stop thinking about it so much it's get away from the pros and cons and trying to figure it out
0: just start trying too
1: many variables Yeah. yeah the entrepreneur in essence is the acting person the the essence of entrepreneurship is taking action you know there's a lot more to it of course but you go out and get experience with things learn about things any way you can Mm -hmm. and if you're enterprising you can find an internship or do a pro bono project or you know be involved in some um, club and go to conferences and read Mm -hmm. books and go Mm -hmm. on to online courses and interview people. I mean there's so many things that you can actually do to get data.
2: This is something that I actually love about Greg and it's something that you've spoken about a lot. Life entrepreneurship and it's a concept that you've coined in terms of approaching life in an entrepreneurial way and it's something that it really changed the way I see life and it's kind of given me my own self-discovery path. So I'd like you to touch on that topic and if you could Give us an example of what it really means yeah. to be a life entrepreneur. Mm.
1: Yeah, I worked with a, uh, a friend of mine who's a former colleague from that online education mm-hmm. startup, Christopher Gergen, and he and I wrote a book called Life Entrepreneurs, which is actually a multi-year project that turned into a book that also we kind of productized the book and you know, launched a startup out of it. <laughs> and uh, so what we did was we interviewed 55 people around the world, mm. uh, most of whom are business and social entrepreneurs um Some famous ones like Howard Schultz from Starbucks yeah. and uh, you know Chipotle is another big one uh, but also a lot of people you'd never heard of uh, energy bars, yoga entrepreneur, rancher, fighter pilot, minister <laughs> civil okay. rights activist, you know all sorts of people uh, wildly diverse we asked them about their life and their work and we put it together in this model of, don't just think about your lot le- of entrepreneurship as being only about starting a business, owning a business, running a business or about being an entrepreneur or a social entrepreneur. Those are all amazing fields, mm. but c- why can't we apply some of those principles and practices of the entrepreneur to our whole life and not just a venture, mm. right? And so, can we have a vision Can we be action-oriented? Can there be some risk and adventure and fun and the passion that we were talking Mm -hmm. about? Can we have some aspect of our values? You know, a lot of entrepreneurs, you have the opportunity. You're not just working for an existing company. You can put your heart and soul into it, your stamp of your values and your own culture. And so why can't we bring those approaches and almost, you know, experimenting, Mm -hmm. like we were talking about, you know, uh, the lean startup approach, uh, testing and iterating and learning and feedback mm-hmm. loops, uh, can't that be appropriate for our life and maybe our career path? And I think there's so much power in entrepreneurship. And so you know, a life entrepreneur to us is one who integrates their life and work according to their values, their passions, and their aspirations. So they're connecting the dots mm-hmm. in their whole life. And significantly they are not being deployed by society or by some company that's telling them, you've gotta do X, Y, and Z. They're not conforming to the way other people think they need mm-hmm. to live, they should live their life. They are blazing their own path. Mm-hmm. And that's gonna be hard, by the way. There's gonna mm-hmm. be uncertainty, there's gonna be risk, there's gonna be a lot of naysayers, there's gonna be seasons of doubt, there's gonna be failure. There's also a beautiful place that you can get to if you can survive those valleys along the way. Uh, so that's the life entrepreneur. I,
0: yeah, I get a lot of friends who really both academically and job-wise, even relationship-wise, they don't know what they want. Mm. And what I kind of am always advising them is you're never going to know what you want 100%, but you will find that by finding out what you don't want. Mm. And that comes down to why you have to try it, whether it's yeah, uh, studies, a career, even a partner. I mean, yeah. How are you going to know what you want unless you're actually identifying what you do not want? Mm. You
2: know, a very interesting story, actually. Ben and Jerry's. Ben and Jerry, the founders, were actually trying to buy bagel equipment because they wanted to start a bagel shop and they couldn't afford it. So I ended up going for ice cream. So, I mean, you never know your journey until you really try and they And they quit several universities. One got into pottery, but he couldn't sell. So I think it's not a linear path. It's more of a trial and error approach, which is something that life entrepreneurship is very important.
1: Can I just say, I think there's real wisdom there what you all are saying and that a lot of people think of entrepreneurship from the outside yeah. as this linear thing of like oh there's this brilliant visionary and you end up launching that yeah. and it works and it's some and obviously there are entrepreneurial visionaries out there no yeah. doubt yeah. you know brilliant people right i think that's quite rare and much more often you end up having to adapt adjust pivot you know away and so you know uh Twitter is not what the founders intended mm. it to be at all. YouTube is not at all what the founders <laughs> intended it to be. And You go down the list, there's so many big things that we take for granted that it turns out that they. it was a discovery mm. process. And you, just being open by taking action. Mm. Uh, and by the way, back to your point of uh, you know, learning what you don't want to do that's real progress. Yeah. You know, scratching out a potential business model for your venture, that's real progress. Mm-hmm. You the, okay, now we know that doesn't work. What's next, what's next? Mm-hmm. And you're kind of iterating your way towards yeah. something to where you do find traction mm-hmm. and clarity mm-hmm. and a good opportunity to solve problems.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And Lean Startup Methodology also talks about how much you need to value that prior experience and mm-hmm. knowledge because it's not wasting your time.
1: Yeah. It's
0: actually super valuable to you.
1: It is. I mean that's the advantage if you get good at learning in that process and the feedback loops that's where innovation then you can really do well in the marketplace.
2: I want to touch on learning and a lot of this or mainly goes with mindset and it's something that I actually learned from you too uh, coined by Carol Dweck on the fixed and growth mindset. A lot of these concepts that we're discussing go with the growth mindset. Could you briefly explain to us what the differences between both and how one helps us progress more in this life entrepreneurship approach.
1: Mm. Yeah, Dr. Carol Dweck out of Stanford has done some really interesting work about mindsets and through her research uh, she's discovered <clears throat> two different mindsets uh, and so the fixed mindset is a belief that your intelligence abilities and talents are fixed so it's an entity theory where they're kind of stable. You, you're as smart as you are. And, uh, and by contrast, the growth mindset is the belief that those things, your intelligence, abilities, and talents can be developed. And so it sounds simple, but the implications are potentially profound and really relevant to entrepreneurs and to life entrepreneurs. And so if you have a fixed mindset, it often will engage your ego such that you don't want to try things that are difficult because if you fail, uh, it'll make you look stupid or wrong or less than, I'm not capable. And so you end up avoiding that because it's risky. But if you have a growth mindset, hey, really cool, hard problem, I don't know how to do that at all, interesting, fun, let's do it, let's dive in and see. Maybe you succeed, maybe you fail. If you fail, you're like, hey, great, I learned a little bit, and maybe the next time I can do something. Okay, what's the next challenge, right? And so if you kind of game that out over time, the people with the fixed mindset are avoiding risks, and they're probably going to plateau. They're not testing themselves. They're not learning as much because they're playing it safe, Hmm. right? But the people with the growth mindset, even if they're failing a lot, up, down, up, and down. But over time, there's this kind of, learning and performance enhancement uh, that you get that's thats cumulative over your life. And so you know, it goes back to an, you know, the essence of entrepreneurship is action, but it's also risk, mm-hmm. which means courage to take that on. I mean, there's a high failure rate. Uh, lean Startup helps you reduce the failure rate, but there's still you know, a lot of uncertainty. It's really hard. Mm-hmm. so. It takes courage to be a founder. It takes courage to be a life entrepreneur. You know, mm-hmm. take that blaze your own path. It's going to be a lot of naysayers, a lot of doubts, um, but uh, you learn a lot about yourself mm. in the process, and it builds a confidence. You know, sense of wow, I survived. You know, <laughs> you know I learned a lot. Mm-hmm. Wow, now I can deploy that for the next, the next chapter. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. So if you're a student and you're you have an idea, how would you bring that to reality?
1: Mm. So one of my observations about uh, working with a lot of students at different levels uh, over some years now is that there are so many resources around that often students aren't aware of Mm. or don't take advantage of for various reasons. They might be afraid to apply to something because they might get rejected. They might not think of themselves as an entrepreneur, so they kind of self-select out. And so there's a mental game here too: fixed mindset versus a growth mindset. <laughs> Why not? You know what? You know what could go wrong? You may. The worst that they say is no, or I, I don't get into the program. And so systematically applying yourself to embedding yourself into the ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Often universities have unbelievable resources. They have yeah. professors, they have incubators, pre-incubators, you know, not all have the Stockholm School of Entrepreneurship or the validators and the international boot camps, mm-hmm. but often there's so much. And then a, alumni network of people who are in startups or mm-hmm. have done startups or who are angel investors or lawyers who work with startups. And all these people sit on a network and so, one of the other power tools of the entrepreneur is resourcefulness. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just like being really good at making something out of very little, right? If you're in a startup, you don't have a lot of capital, typically, you don't have a lot of people, you don't have a lot of tech, but you have to make something almost out of nothing. You know, Daniel Ek of Spotify is the master example of this. You know, it was just, he loved music, he played the guitar, he had this vision, making you know music accessible but legal. But he was—he's been called. He was on the cover of like Fortune magazine, and he was called, you know, I think, the Tom Sawyer of of entrepreneurs. And there was this, this notion of Tom Sawyer was this troublemaking kid who would who would be forced to go paint fences. And Tom Sawyer was so brilliant that he would get other people. He would convince them to spend their whole weekend painting the fence for him while he went fishing. Right, and so he just made something out of nothing, yeah. and that's what you have to do. And so you know, be resourceful. And so a lot of that is about people. The other thing students don't understand about this is I think, you know Paul Graham writes about this from Y Combinator. You know, his brilliant blogs um, is that when you're in school, you think you're in school, but you're not just in school. You're setting yourself up for the next chapter of life. And you're also around amazing people, you know, intellectually with lectures or guests, but also, you know, your classmates, and and so there's potential co-founders right around you. Mm-hmm. But often you're not thinking of that, and so you're not you're not hacking your class to turn that project into like a startup experiment or a learning mm-hmm. or your thesis is another great mm-hmm. opportunity. To say, well, I could write my thesis, or I can write a thesis, get credit, and learn about something and network in an area that's going to advance the next Mm. chapter. Mm. So you kind of have to hack it.
2: Interesting. Mm. All this is actually, I think, very useful for many of us going into our early career. And that's what I want to get back to. How do you find your daily motivation, and what is it that really drives you? What is behind all this kind of driving force that's pushing you, your family and what you do mm. uh, forward? Mm. Uh, a lot of my drive
1: right now is my wife and I have uh, a couple daughters mm-hmm. and and so it's a really important and rich period of life to be um, you know, a, a father and mm-hmm. a, a partner in, in a family and to have to you know, entrepreneur our lives from that perspective, to, to, to work and support the girls schooling and so and just to help them create their future it kind of get you know gets you out of your own little bubble of like (laughs) it's all about me and my (laughs) career and all of a sudden you've got this little baby who's totally dependent on you right Um, and so it's this really challenging but a beautiful part of life The, the other thing that motivates me is about 10 years ago I took time to do some of this discovery work that we're talking about and I wrote out a statement of what feels purposeful to me. I wrote out my values, Mm -hmm. and not just words, but I explained what I meant. I wrote out a vision for my life. I uh, did a bunch of assessments and figured out what my strengths are. I got feedback on it. I wrote down my passions. And all of this I kind of revisit. And that's very motivating to me because it kind of grounds me and it energizes me in something fundamental. You know, not to something that somebody imposed on me, but something to kind of who I really am at the core. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I've drifted away from that, and then you lose energy, and you know. But then I can always come back to that kind of safe harbor of what is that is that, that core, and so that clarity can be very powerful. Now it's not easy, and doesn't mean that it's yeah. I, you know, I'm on the journey too. You know, we're, we're all <laughs> have these ups and downs and chapters, and it can be brutally hard. But it it's really helpful. Um, and so in that zones that are kind of a sweet spot, mm. purpose, passion, value adding, does it fit with my values? And, and there's good signs of that. You know? yeah. Am I getting lost in my work? What's my fun factor? What's my energy level? Um, those, are, those are good signs we want to pay attention to.
2: You know? It's interesting because it kind of leads to being mindful. Mm. And you can see that mindfulness is growing as a m- business, but I think it's because there is a lack of mindfulness from uh, young people. It's a yeah. kind of pulse. Yeah. So, yeah.
1: I, well, I think there's a huge movement towards the mindfulness, Ellen Langer, and meditation, to your point. And I also like to connect a, another couple words to, the, to those. One would be intentionality. Mm. So being intentional about your life. Mm-hmm. Being intentional about what you're trying to do while you're in school, mm-hmm. right? It's not always clear what is the purpose of education, you know, <laughs> uh, but taking a little time to think about it and not just taking class and um, and then, if you're doing a startup, being really intentional about what kind of startup do we wanna build? What's the, what's the end game? What's our vision? What kind of culture? I mean, so many startups, they skip over these things because they're busy and it's hard. Oh my God, there's a crisis over here. We're trying to raise money. We've got to launch this and we've got a problem. I don't have time for culture, right? And so they don't <laughs> intentionally build a culture, yeah. but th- so they end up having a culture that's bad yeah. because it was ignored for six months or mm. nine months and they hired bad people too quickly without vetting them. So, it, and So intentional, and then the other word is conscious. And you know this. You know, let's go macro for a second here. You know there's a movement in the world which is conscious capitalism.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It's reflecting on you know, business. You know business is amazing innovation, jobs. Mm-hmm. You know so much. We I mean, look at all the products that we have. It's unbelievable what we have at our fingertips, right? And yet we have all this environmental damage. We have inequality. We have all these. Mm-hmm. You know people. You know not being treated well uh, at work. And so the old model of capitalism is very much under question, right? And so a lot of people are cynical about it. you see a movement away or a questioning of capitalism that undergirds the entrepreneurship opportunity, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, You can't have entrepreneurship if it's everything state-directed, you know? Uh, But there's a counter-movement, which is conscious capitalism, which is kind of saying we have conscious businesses that look at not just profit, but also employee experience and customer value and vendors and the community and the planet. And you pay attention to all the stakeholders and, and uh, you have a conscious culture and you have conscious leadership. And so just connecting the dots, conscious capitalism requires a bunch of conscious businesses. You know, if you're <laughs> gonna do a startup, what kind of startup are you gonna do? Yeah. Are you gonna fall into some of the old traps that have led us to climate, you know, where yeah. we are now. And, but, so that's going to take conscious leadership to have yeah. conscious businesses. Yeah. And what does it take to have conscious leadership? It takes conscious living, yeah. intentionality, right? Mindful, yeah. you know, back to your point. So it all, you
2: want to line up the <laughs> dots. I think it leads us back to triple yeah, crown I leadership. Like, yeah, full so circle. I'd definitely <laughs> recommend the book. Yeah.
0: Great. Uh, now we're going to do a rapid fire question okay. round to wrap up. So, Try to answer these as quickly as you can. Uh, Who is your biggest role model?
1: I would say my father. I've learned so much uh, from him, Uh, as we've talked about. uh, I'd add one more. I had a professor of philosophy who taught us to love the questions. (laughs) Not just quickly answer them, but to sit with the questions Mm -hmm. and to learn to love the questions, like who am I, where am I going in my life? Mm
0: -hmm. Who do you call when you get bad news?
1: I call on nature when I get bad news. Um, you know, I, I like to get grounded, okay. you know, uh, find sanctuary, mm-hmm. go for a walk, get in the woods, go up mm-hmm. in the mountains mm-hmm. and just reconnect.
0: Mm-hmm. Who do you call when you get good news? My wife. <laughs> Who is your dream dinner companion?
1: Yeah, so many. Uh, I would love to sit with Parker Palmer. Parker Palmer is an educator uh, and a brilliant writer. He wrote Let Your Life Speak. He wrote A Hidden Wholeness. And he went through a debilitating bout of depression uh, where just brutal for a long, long period of time. But he's come out to a place where he is whole. He integrates uh, his whole life and he invites you to do that, to stop living a divided life and be different people in different situations and try to just integrate the whole.
0: Mm-hmm. What is your favorite book, other than your own? No? <laughs> <laughs> I can't
1: say that, no, no. Uh, well, I love uh, Richard Bach, Illusions, and I love Paulo Coelho, The Alchemist, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, but then I'd have to say on the subject of what we're talking about, uh, Let Your Life Speak. It's just okay. a wonderful little gem.
0: If you weren't doing what you do right now, where would you see yourself?
1: Yeah. Uh, well, I'm doing a lot of fun things right now, but I think uh, <laughs> I would be doing more writing. I would be back to my next book if I weren't launching my venture right now. And uh, I'm actually trying to work my next book into my enterprise by building it into my training and my yeah. speaking and my coaching and my consulting. Uh, but I'm really looking forward to, I love to write. And make a circle where the writing informs the teaching and the training and, you know, it all sort of, uh, uh, you get some, some traction and some benefits from all the learning that you get from your students and from clients and from trying out new ideas.
0: What are you most proud of?
1: Most proud of being a present father. That's great. I, a friend told me once, they're only young once. Uh, and that's when I had young girls, and that was a really good warning that hit me hard and said, well, you can get caught up being busy in your own life. They're only young ones, so I'm trying to honor that. Mm
0: -hmm. And finally, how do you want to be remembered?
1: I would like to be remembered as someone who helped people lead good lives, to live good work and to lead good lives.
2: Wow. Thank you so much. Yeah,
0: we're so happy to have you back in Stockholm. And I know all of the students in recent grads are looking so forward to your workshop, upcoming workshop. And I just
2: want to ask, how could someone reach to you if they're interested in knowing more about your books or your teachings?
1: Yes. Uh, so I've got a new website that's uh, gregvanerick.com. And uh, so that's a great way to reach me. Uh, we've got a, a triplecrownleadership.com website for that book that we talked about. And I'm on Twitter at G Vanerick, uh, which I have a lot of fun with. Mm-hmm.
0: For those who are interested, you can find the website at com, And Twitter is the same, G-V-A-N-O-U-R-E-K. You are EK, and you can also view Greg's TED Talk on YouTube where you talk about life entrepreneurs, That's right? Yes, that's right. I got to see it last year, and it was fantastic. I have to say
2: I've seen it four times, (laughs) and I've recommended it to everyone in my family, so I would definitely recommend it. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Great. Thanks so much, Greg.
2: Thank you, Greg. Thank you.
0: In this episode, Greg taught us about the importance of leading yourself, others, and change by combining a good life with good work. We hope you enjoyed listening as much as we enjoyed recording this episode, filled with so much value for students who are currently wondering what their path in life will be and how they can get there. There's so much opportunity out there for you to grab. Take the time to get in touch with yourself and find out what it is that you really want, not what someone else wants for you. And remember, you are your own harshest critic, so be nice to yourself and try not to set too much pressure on yourself or deadlines for how your life should look by the age of 25, because it takes the fun out of it. Live life the way you want. Thanks for listening to the Unipreneurs podcast with us. If you like our show and want to know more, check out www.uniprene.com. EURS.com and be sure to follow us on social media.